Hello and welcome to The Word is Resistance, a project of Surge Faith. In this podcast, we journey with the common lectionary and infuse it with a posture of soulful politics. This is an invitation to examine how sacred Jewish and Christian texts can speak with a fresh voice about what is going on in our world right now. Not only the adaptive and bold faces of white supremacy and powers that dominate, but also joyful spiritual technologies, as my friends at Jews for Racial and Economic Justice taught me to say. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. First, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Haven Heron, and I joined the team of contributors for The Word is Resistance earlier this year. I serve as the director of SoulForce, a 20-year-old LGBTQI organization dedicated to sabotaging Christian supremacy and reclaiming our spirits. I come to this work as a white person, an artist and dancer and earth tender, who knows that resistance to white supremacy is a significant part of healing my own soul. To further place myself, I am recording this today from my home in Salem, Massachusetts, original home of the Namhoon Cake people. I offer my warmest and gentlest welcome to the original keepers of this land to join us here today in our work if they wish. Thank you, ancestors, for the graciousness to be here today and pursue justice together. It's important to say that this podcast is crafted especially for white people. White people challenging, supporting, and collaborating with other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy all while being in alignment with the leadership of people of color. We welcome reflections from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. Now I invite you to breathe with me, to calm the vagus nerve that runs through your body, connecting your emotions to your knowings to your flesh and bone. When we breathe deep into our center, We calm what some call the soul nerve and push out anxiety, busy thoughts, and fear. It's a good reminder that we can be our own source of encouragement and soothing in these wild times. One more breath. You are so welcome here. I am really happy you are taking the time to explore what our theological, practical, and creative responses can be to our political climate. The portion of the lectionary that I want to delve into today are the first two chapters of Job. They speak into two things that are up for a lot of us this week, spiritually and politically, so-called Columbus Day and the Supreme Court hearings. Racial violence, sexual violence, and the violence of colonization are intrinsically bound. For those of you who cannot or do not want to explore colonizer violence and sexual violence on this podcast today, I completely understand and send you heaps of blessings and solidarity energy. Courage, sisters, don't get weary. Courage, brothers, don't get weary. 
how does the book of Job connect to these intermingled forms of violence? By exploring the nature or cause of suffering and the role of atonement. The first point, which I want to touch on just lightly as it's worth saying, but not the heart of the matter today, is the question of suffering. When we first meet Job, he is presented to us as the archetype of devotion, piety, and genuine decency. Satan is a cynical angel, antagonizing God with a false picture of Job, one in which Job is only so pious and upright because he has it easy with God's blessings of many livestock, fertile lands, and a large and prosperous family. And Job does have it good, but God is so sure that Job's character is an internally sourced goodness rather than the byproduct of ease and prosperity that God permits Satan to test Job. The livestock are stolen, the lands burn, his skin is afflicted with some terrible disease, and his children and his servants are murdered. And yet, Job responds with devotion and awe at God's power. It's an absolute rejection of the prosperity gospel a bankrupt, transactional theology that proclaims that resources and ease flow to those who are in God's favor, and therefore those who are faced with adversity somehow deserve it because of a moral failing. There are megachurch pastors who get rich off this modern-day right-wing evangelical version of indulgences, but it's a particular theology of suffering that supports retroactive blanket moral assessments and victim-blaming, and it existed long before megachurches. Satan would be in league with the folks today who think that those who suffer from systemic oppression and toxic cultural mythologies like, and I put this in quotes, poverty is a moral failing, or rape culture, have somehow earned their struggles. This might seem a little to the side, but before we get to the history lesson and theology of atonement that the book of Job inspires for me, I wanted to touch on this thread about the prosperity gospel and the ideas it contains because the book of Job calls for a shift away from individual victim-blaming instead of systems thinking. When it comes to systematic oppression like racism or sexism, there's no such thing as deserving trauma or or the if you had just preemptive individual action. Sometimes suffering is just the meddling and violence of a cynical and broken person or culture. We need to challenge ourselves and others who might be persuaded to sometimes side with Satan to consider that some or all of the blame often belongs with cultures and systems of violence and the institutions and leaders that uphold them. Now here's where I really get rolling. Twice we are told in these two chapters that Job is an upright and blameless man. God himself says it so. Scholars speak about the intentional use of the word blameless, that sin is what is between a person and God, whereas blamelessness is determined by the relations among people a vertical versus horizontal dynamic. Job knows he and his family are not perfect. In fact, his first act in this book considered to be one of the most ancient texts, if not the oldest, is to make sacrifices on behalf of his children. He's not off in a la-la land of blissful innocence. He recognizes it takes labor to square oneself to one's people and to one's God. Blamelessness is not the same as sinlessness, which means that Job, considered the greatest man in the East, per chapter 1, verse 2, is also doing the work for correct relations among his people. A man of so much wealth, one might think that people would resent him or have strife with him given the power differential. That means he has figured out atonement, 
a way of dealing with the upsets of natural human interactions across lines of power and healing them. Atonement is looming large on my mind this week. Perpetual innocence is being invoked by the supporters of Brett Kavanaugh as he goes through his Senate judiciary hearings. Some claim that the sexual violence he perpetrated when he was 17 should not follow him around, that it should be forgotten as if it has decayed over time to the point of insignificance. Past trauma only stays in the past if it is properly healed. Biology says so when the memories of traumatic events refuse to sit back and be knit into our life narratives. And Christian and Jewish theologies also say so when we are given dozens of rules of how to repay people who we have harmed, heal social rifts, and sustain community. Job knows what it's like to have power and wealth, yet he continues a practice of sacrifice and atonement. Others, like we witness in the news today, think power ought to buy them a way out of atonement. But time does not heal or disappear all wounds. The wounds of trauma and systematic violence keep festering, requiring our action to repair them. One of the oldest wounds on this land, what some call the United States, is European colonization, which desecrated much of this land and continues to defile it with oil pipelines, chemical spills, and scavenging of resources. The supposed triumph of claiming this land for God and country in Europe under the papal bulls of 1493 that comprised the doctrine of discovery, was and is a traumatic event whose memory cannot and should not sit back. I also bring up sexual violence and the Supreme Court hearings because this form of violence has consistently been used in the project of colonization and provided the tools of social control, theological premises, and labor to underwrite the colonization process that came to these lands and so many others. Beginning in the 1400s, the working class in Europe was dispossessed from its lands, torn away from the grounding relationship to land, plants, healing wisdom, and community. That was spiritual violence as much as it was physical violence, and a concurrent decriminalization of rape, which unleashed a torrent of sexual violence against working class women, was a primary tool of the state to demoralize the working class through gender betrayal, which paved the way for capitalist exploitation. The church, for its own part, then wove in its trope of the witch to enable the witch hunts that would lead to the death of roughly 100,000 women throughout the 1500s and 1600s. It was women who had been the primary challengers to the twin aggressions from church and state to dispossess people of their land, homes, ability to feed and heal themselves and their labor. So they were the primary target of Christianized violence meted out against body and land. Having learned the lesson that to break the bonds across lines of gender is to break the unified working class, the European merchant class and heads of state turned toward westward expansion. The church provided cover under its doctrine of discovery, which supposedly gave God's blessing for the colonization of more lands and the racial caste system that ordered and ordained such expansion so that it could keep its own power over the state and share in the spoils. The colonizers took those lessons from Europe, that sexual violence is a powerful tool that destroys community and opens up land and labor and bodies for exploitation and used them here on Turtle Island. The witch hunts came along for the ride as they too were useful in estranging and oppressing women of color, as the supposed human cognate of land, healing, intuition, emotion, and cooperative community relations, and therefore a threat to the colonization process.
Church and state came together in a perfect union, armed with sexual violence and white supremacist ideology, to subjugate women, or anyone who didn't fit into the gender binary and heteronormative model. Children, people who drew their spiritual power and sustenance from non-Christian cosmologies, healing wisdom and allegiance to collective community relations. Yes, I get all that from Job, because as we come upon this so-called Columbus Day, the history is still crying to be told. These traumatic events will not integrate because they are not healed, and nothing but atonement in the form of reparations, meaningful apology, restoration of lands, the end of capitalist practices that harm the environment and our bodies, retracting the violence that is the gender binary as taught by the colonizer, and many other things besides will resolve these wounds. Thank you for going on that journey with me. I just could not do justice by my challenge to white supremacy this week among all weeks without addressing the sexual violence that is entangled at all stages of the history of racial violence enacted by the project of empire. White folks, especially Christian white folks, for sure have to reckon with Christian supremacy and its many forms of aggression and oppression in order to adequately uproot any of them. I will include a list of books that influence this line of thinking for me at the bottom of my transcript, including titles by Starhawk, Sylvia Federici, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Deirdre English. Here's where we talk about what you can do to be part of the healing process. I have a suggestion of my own, a simple one, that is always a good place to start if you are new to thinking about indigenous justice work. It is important to know on whose land you reside. A fairly new app called Native Land, run by Victor G. Temprano, does an amazing job of telling the history of colonized lands. When in doubt, start where your body is and build knowledge and work from there. Chances are there are local tribes that have explicit concerns and aims that you could put your support behind. The website is native-land.ca. I also have a few suggestions that come by way of Roger Drew and some of their colleagues. Jeff Ordewer points to the No Bayou Bridge movement, which is working to protect water and land in Louisiana from yet another fracking oil pipeline. There are opportunities to canvas, challenge the funding partners of the bridge project, take part in trainings, and be a media activist. The website is nobayoubridge.global. Berkeley Carnine wrote a piece on waging nonviolence called How to Support Standing Rock and Confront What It Means to Live on Stolen Land, which is still every bit as relevant as when the water protectors were out on the land. If you are curious about the doctrine of discovery and present-day resistance to it across many regions and, and indigenous justice issues, you can contact Phil Arnold to join the Doctrine of Discovery listserv at info at indigenousvalues.org. Thank you to the folks who contributed their labor and ideas to creating these options for taking action. And thank you for spending your precious time with me at The Word is Resistance, the podcast of Surge Faith. Thanks to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl, for your labor and support. Links and book titles will be listed at the end of this transcript for your reference. 
Many blessings and so much gratitude for you and your spirited resistance. Until next time, I'm Haven Heron.